Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast that you'll be listening to today is called Women's Sexuality, Desire, Pornography, and Talking to Our Kids About Sex, originally produced and published by Jody Moore. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the episode. I had the great privilege and honor of talking with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Some of you I know are familiar with her work, and I have referenced her work before. She does the important work of helping us to navigate our relationships, and her emphasis is in regard to our sexuality and our desire and how to have the type of sex life we want in our marriages for all of us to feel like we're getting what we need and to really understand that part of us that Heavenly Father gave to each of us that seems to be rather complicated. (laughs) I don't know about you, but to me, it's a complicated thing to understand, especially given the law of chastity, the world we live in, and many other factors. So, I will say that Dr. Fife was so wonderful and patient as we conducted this interview. We had some tech problems. The sound cut out every now and again, and I think I've been able to edit it in such a way that you really won't notice or be affected, but if you do, that's why. That's what was going on. And also, at the end of the interview, I'm going to share a few wrap-up thoughts with you guys that I have after talking to Dr. Fife and clarify also just a couple other things I know from studying her work. Um, So without further ado, let's go to the interview. So thank you so much. I'm really appreciative of you for coming on the podcast. I I wanted to tell you just kind of how I found you, and then I'm going to have you just briefly tell my listeners kind of, you know, about what you do. Sure. had a friend mention you to me about eight months ago. She said, haven't you heard of Jennifer Finlayson Five? She's a Mormon sex therapist. And I was like, what? There is something? (laughs) (laughs) And so I immediately Googled you and found your website. And then I found the Rational Fates podcast that you are, you guest on pretty frequently, right? Yep. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I immediately began binge listening to every episode that you were on. <laughs> and um I just I just devoured it because I think it's it's so on point, it's so brilliant, it's so necessary in our world today. And then even my husband got on and listened to all of them. So anyway, I I love what you teach and I'm really excited to have you here today. Will you tell um for my listeners who aren't familiar with you, just give us a little bit about what it is that you do and how you got involved in it. Sure. So, well, I, um, the way I got involved in it is that I was uh, get, doing my PhD and I was trying to come up with a topic for my dissertation. And I was also asked at that time if I would teach two undergraduate courses, which is kind of typical. They ask uh, PhD candidates to teach undergrad courses. And they asked me comically to do um, human sexuality and drugs and alcohol. And I was unmarried at the time and I had like no personal <laughs> experience with either. And I thought it was hilarious that they were asking me to teach these two courses. The, the <laughs> but, single Mormon girl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I actually accepted only one, which was the human sexuality one. And I started doing a lot of research on looking at the textbooks I had suggested. And all this, it's a long answer, but in essence, it drew me to my dissertation. So I wrote my dissertation on Mormon women and sexuality 
And it was a really fascinating, I interviewed active members of the church who'd grown up in the church who were, and they were currently married and talked to them about their premarital experiences uh, with dating and negotiating um, sexual intimate decision-making, meaning when to kiss somebody, when to engage further, and then uh, how they transitioned into marriage. So it was a really fascinating study. And then I opened my practice. I was home with my kids for several years, and then I opened my practice about eight years ago and 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 primarily do work with um, Mormon couples and, and more particularly often Mormon women around relationship and sexuality issues. Awesome. So, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, at the end, I'll have you share just more about where we can find you and how people can get more help from you. Sure. So to begin with, um, I have just a few questions I was hoping you could address today. So first of all, I love the message you send about sexuality being something that each of us is responsible for individually and that we need to keep the ownership over it and come to understand it and, you know, cultivate our own desire. So Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your philosophy there and mm-hmm. how as LDS women, most of my listeners are LDS women, um, but certainly I know this applies to anyone, but how can we keep that ownership and cultivate it for ourselves? Yeah, well, I would say keeping it is, is, is sometimes it's just creating it in the first place for many of us. I think that um, there is our theology and then there's our culture. And um, I think we have, many of us have been enculturated into the idea that our sexuality, particularly as women, is legitimized by using it to serve or service a husband. And so many of us are kind of even coming into this question that you're asking from the paradigm of that I, um, my sexuality is only legitimate if it's um, about taking care of someone else. And it's only legitimate if he arouses it and he cultivates it within me. So many of us have been taught the idea that sort of our sexuality doesn't exist or it shouldn't exist until we're married. And then it should sort of be woken up by your husband. And that's a fantasy. Okay. I mean, that's, right. <laughs> it's, just not, it's just not true. And it's not the way that it works for people. And that is to say, you know, we're sexual from birth. We're inherently sexual you know, um, that you, it's just a part of our divine bodies is to be sexual and embodied. And of course, your sexuality is immature when you're born. You don't have a, much of a relationship to it. But as you come to even know your own body as a younger person, you come to become aware of your body's capacity. Many of us, most of us become aware on some level of our body's capacity for pleasure and arousal uh, and just sensuality, right, which is all really fundamental to our sexuality. And so, and so the, the reality, though, is that many of us don't engage in a natural progression of deeper self-awareness and deeper self-knowledge around just your body and your sexuality and your sensuality. For girls in particular, I, I think it happens for boys too, but in a different way. But for girls especially, there's this feeling that my sexuality or my sexual feelings are are incongruent with my femininity, femininity and my um, goodness, and therefore my desirability as a woman. And so many of us, 
work hard to kind of repress and suppress this natural part of ourselves. And I obviously, I think part of that is important, you know, especially when you obey, uh, believe in obeying the law of chastity, there's a certain amount of redirection and management of those feelings that's important. But what I'm talking about here is more of a kind of instinctive shame, uh, anxiety about the presence of sexual feelings that um, works against the integration of our sexuality. And so I'm very interested in helping people in the creation of sexual integrity, mm. meaning the literal integration of their sexuality in line with their moral values. Mm. And many of us struggle with this, men included. Um, but, you know, so for example, the women that I interviewed in my dissertation, there were two groups. The majority did not integrate well. Um, a minority did integrate better. The, the ones who did not integrate their sexuality well had, you know, one of the questions that I asked was, do you remember your first experience of arousal? Mm-hmm. And for those who didn't, one of the, one version of this, but those who didn't do well, they had a shame response to this reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had this feeling that something was wrong or bad uh, or, or scary about these feelings. Mm-hmm. So one woman uh, who, reflecting back on her uh, childhood, remembered sitting on a doll, the head of a doll, and that it was arousing to her that she could feel her body responding. And she said that she immediately stood up and the words in her head were bad, dirty, bad. That she just felt like that, that some, she had done something wrong. This was a dirty part of herself. The women who integrated their sexuality well had, they would, you know, somehow would become aware of their own body's capacity for arousal and they would have a positive response to it. Like, wow, like that's cool. That's cool that my body can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, some even masturbated and became very aware and even repented of it. Like they felt like, okay, this is not what I want to do. So it wasn't high shame or high anxiety. Um, it was, they made a decision about it. You know, I'm going to save this for another a later time when I'm married, but it wasn't, it, they saw them, their body as having possibility and capacity and they saw it as a positive reality. And so the women who did well, who had, who moved comfortably into marital sexuality, who were enjoying sex as a married person, that they had all achieved a certain kind of integration with their sexuality, um, even if it was early in its stages. So that is to say that they had a sense of their sexuality belonging to them Mm. before they got married. They saw themselves as already sexual. They already anticipated that this would be a wonderful, good part of their life. And then when they got married, it was more of an experience of sharing their, their sexuality with their partner, with their husband, not that now uh, he will legitimize it, having sex with him will legitimize it, he'll awaken it. Um, and for the women who didn't do well, they did see it that way. And they saw it as like, my sexuality is made um, legitimate through servicing him. Mm-hmm. That, that is to say that that our sexual relationship and my sexuality is really about my partner. It's really about my husband. It's about keeping him happy. And that's why, you know, that's why I can be sexual. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a blasphemy in my opinion. I don't think that this is the right way to think about sex. 
and our sexuality. And when we do think about it this way, it kills our desire immediately. Totally. I agree. Can I ask you a question real quick? So sure. uh, as you know, many of my listeners are parents. And um, so I know one of the things that really comes up for me when I hear you talk about this is wanting to do my best to position it for my children. So mm-hmm. how do you recommend that we teach our children the law of chastity and yet not create this shaming culture and not send the message that those arousing feelings that they will have long before they're married are not anything to be ashamed of. Yeah. So first of all, I would say that shaming is antithetical to what our goal is in the sense that shame, first of all, uh, in my dissertation research, and this is supported in a lot of other research, is the more shame and anxiety someone feels, uh, they often were, they, they were the ones that were less likely to obey the law of chastity, mm. not because they felt so much desire, but because they felt so little ability to anchor into their own integrity. It was such high anxiety behavior that they often, there's so much I could say about this because it's particularly true for girls, but uh, it, you, it's a, it, if you think about it in this way, if you were to grow up saying just the fact that you want sweets means you're a bad person. The fact that you want sweets makes you a very, very bad person. Don't think about it. Don't look at it. Don't want it. You're going to create one of two realities, either somebody who is anorexic or somebody who's bulimic. Mm-hmm. Okay. But not somebody who's integrated a good part of life into a health in a healthy way into their larger um, values and goals. And so we want to think about sexuality in much the same way. Sexuality is not good or bad. It just is. We are sexual inherently. How we relate to our sexuality has a big impact. Part of the reason we're all so stressed out about sex is (laughs) parents included, leaders included, is because sexuality is a very um, high power currency. The way we engage with our sexuality has high impact on those we're in relationship with and with ourselves. You know, when we say that sex is next to murder, this is where I agree with it, is that sexual exploitation is next to murder in the sense that there's really nothing more destructive than being exploitative towards another person with their sexuality, sexually abusing a child, for example. Mm-hmm. And so, but, um, and so it's a very powerful way of engaging with yourself and with another person. And so doing it wisely really, really matters. And so I, you know, I'm certainly, just like I would be with food, I'm certainly understanding of the fact that my child would be drawn to sweets, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they would want to eat only Halloween candy for breakfast. That, I'm not going to shame that. I certainly make sense to me. So I'm not, I'm acknowledging of the desire, I'm in, in sexuality too, I'm acknowledging of the feelings. Of course, that's just a natural part of being human. It's, it's connected to survival. It's a very important desire. Something would be going wrong if my children never did feel any desire or never felt any sexual feelings. I want them to have those feelings. But talking to them about how they direct them and how they, what it is that they're ultimately aiming for. So taking it back to the metaphor of food, if I have a goal of being a healthy person that integrates you know, sugar 
in a way that's congruent with my larger goals of being healthy, but also having pleasure in my life and, you know, not living a stoic life, then <laughs> um, how am I going to integrate this desire and this passion in a way that's congruent with what I ultimately want for myself that I believe is good? Mm-hmm. It's the same with sexuality. Of course, the feelings are going to be there. If we all acted on our feelings at any time, we would all be in jail because you can't, you know, meaning we are constantly, even as adults, redirecting our impulses and our feelings. That's just part of being human. So what is it that you're striving and aiming for? You know, part of the issue I have with the way we talk to boys in particular and girls, if we do, about porn is that basically in the world we live in now, it's like our kids are in a candy shop all the time. Porn is everywhere. Okay. And then when you have a uh, 13-year-old who is in the candy store because he's on his computer and he has access to something and he gets curious and he's, he's compelled by it, then he has the parent who comes in and is shaming of the fact that he's doing what would be completely natural and developmentally normal is for him to be curious or in the metaphor of eating that candy, you know, so we both put our kids in candy stores in this sense mm-hmm. that it's everywhere. And then we shame them for the fact that they start eating the candy as if Satan's now in their heart, as opposed to, you know, you're doing something that would be normal and developmentally, you know, appropriate in the sense that you're doing what you're sort of wired to do, but it's not good for you. Okay. So how do we help you with your sexual feelings and thoughts to, to, to get you out of the candy store for one thing, you know, to manage the internet and access and all that to the best of our ability. But given that we can't fully control that, how do we then talk to our kids about the fact that these realities are there and that they are, what is it that they're really striving towards? If you want to be in a loving, committed relationship with another person, okay, looking at porn every day is probably not going to help you create that reality. It's not going to help you shape your sexuality in a direction that's pro-social and really capable of a deeply loving, intimate relationship. And so it, it has to be a much more straightforward and less shaming conversation, less anxiety, less high anxiety conversation with our kids. Mm. Um, well, you know, I had a friend who was telling me she was so afraid of her child becoming a porn addict. And he, she, her boys were three and five years old, okay? And she was literally like throwing herself in front of the magazines in the, in the grocery store stand when somebody would be in a swimming suit or some, you know, suggestive position or something. Mm-hmm. And I said, you, you are turning them into porn addicts. <laughs> With all, respect, all due respect, your high anxiety, you, you're, you're basically saying you don't trust your boys and you are showing them how high anxiety this is. You are forging curiosity. You're forging two feelings in them. Mm-hmm. High curiosity, because what is it that mom's so upset about that she's like throwing herself in front of magazines, okay, to co- keep it from me? Mm-hmm. And high fear that whatever this is, is dangerous and it's bad. Mm-hmm. And those two ideas pressure porn use. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't actually integrate these feelings inside of me in a pro-social loving way. It's toxic. What's inside of me is destructive. And I can't have access to it. Like, it's, it's being forbidden. There's so much anxiety. It's like the idea you can't ever have sweets. Next thing you don't know, you're eating a half of a pan in the, in the pantry. Mm-hmm. Right. So is the message then you're saying not don't look at porn because that's what bad people do, but let's 
not look at porn because it's not going to create what you want in your life. It's not going to force yeah. the relationships you want, right? The bigger picture. Exactly. exactly. So, so the short answer is I'm really uh, not in any way shaming of my kids' sexuality. They see that I'm comfortable uh, with being a sexual being. Like they can feel the attraction I have for their dad. I will sometimes comment on how attractive he looks you know they, they they can see the comfort with it but it's also saying like and there's no shaming of the feelings but there's high focus on like what is it that you want to create and how do you want to relate to these feelings and that there's high value in saving this for a, for this special person that you will meet and love deeply down the road and to not trivialize it in the way that the larger culture can and does. Really helpful. Thank you. So last question, and I know this doesn't happen for everyone. I've heard you quote that about 30% of your, your clients, um, the women is the higher desire partner, right? So I know that can happen. But what I hear commonly that I'm hoping you can address is this experience where I don't know if it's more prevalent in the LDS culture, but you know, where this sexual desire feels very alive and strong while you're single and while you're dating and while you're in, engaged, even and you're just trying to resist it. Mm-hmm. And then you get married and now everything's allowed and in fact expected. And it feels like your desire suddenly is gone. <laughs> it feels like a trick. I've heard people say. Yep. Yeah, Can you absolutely. Why that happens and, and sure. to remedy it? Sure. Well, so what I would say is our sense of self, belonging to ourselves, is more important to us than our sexuality. And that's true for men too. And so if we don't feel that we belong to ourselves, um, we will we will engage with our sexuality to remedy that. And so what I mean is when you're dating. You meet this man that you love. You're very attracted to him. You're not sure if he likes you back. You're not sure if you guys have a future. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so the desire is sort of like, I want to merge with this person. I want to connect with this person. I want the validation of his desire for me. And so the desiring is reaffirming of the self. It's expanding the self. It's like, I love this person. I want this person and being with him makes me feel like bigger, more whole, more complete, more lovable. And so it feels good to desire them. And so desire is in full force. When you get married and especially in the way that we have been enculturated often in our uh, LDS culture is that if you get married and now you think, well, now I'm supposed to be sexual. Now I have to be sexual because it's my duty. And he's the one who's really the sexual person. I'm just, you know, I just want his sexual validation. I want to be desirable to him. Um, But it's really his sexuality that we need to attend to so he's not looking at porn and so on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That immediately then your sense of self is like, I'm supposed to service this guy sexually. And... It takes a lot of self-validation, a lot of self-confidence to really let somebody know you sexually, to know yourself sexually and to really let yourself be known. And many of us don't have that upon getting married. So there's anxiety about that level of exposure. Mm-hmm. Right? It's one thing to desire and make out, but it's another thing to say, hey, come into my body and experience me. 
uh, that takes that's higher anxiety. Uh, and so that coupled with I'm supposed to give this to him and he seems to be having a great time. Well, the other thing is that for many women, it's painful at first and pleasure is not uh, as easy to get to because women's sexuality, women's anatomy is not as conducive to pleasure and intercourse as it is for men. Mm. And so when we make sex all about intercourse, not about sensuality and intimacy and closeness and pleasuring, um, then you on your wedding night, have intercourse, it may be painful. You may not have any clue about what, what is even supposed to be good about this. <laughs> he seems to be having a great time. And he's like, let's do that again. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so for many women, it's like, crap, you know, now I'm supposed to do this for eternity. Like, what? I got tricked, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and so for many women, the way they start trying to belong to themselves is let's shut this thing down. I don't know that I want anything to do with this. And see, the reality is if we won't make room for ourselves, if we buy into this idea that sex is for men and it's for us to give this to men, sex will die, like at the beginning, okay? Because first of all, that's not our theology. We're equally yoked. We are equal partners. And sexuality is for both of us. The clitoris, its only function is pleasure for the woman. And the woman's, the woman's capacity for pleasure is higher than a man's capacity for pleasure, uh, women, if any of the two has higher sexual capacity between men and women, it's women. But in a male-centric frame around sexuality, women look like sexually incompetent. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and men look like they're, they're very comfortable sexually because it's low contact, low intimacy, uh, and it doesn't pull out a woman's natural sexual capacity. Men are perhaps, men and women are sexual, but women are more discerning. They're more discriminating about when they're going to show up sexually. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But if it's all about the man's pleasure, she's it, both what they're doing as a couple and the psychological environment, she's not going to show up. And so then it starts becoming about how to service him, how to keep him happy, how to get him off her back, how to, you know. I got to better put it, I better have sex so he doesn't get tempted by porn. And that becomes the sexual relationship. And it's miserable for both parties. Miserable. So and the woman needs to redirect to try to get in touch with her own, you know, pleasure or what, what do yes. you recommend? Yes. I think that the basic paradigm is this is not sex for you, husband. This is our sexual relationship. Mm. And if I'm not happy this is not working yet. Mm -hmm. Meaning, what is it that I need? What would give me pleasure? What would I? What would be helpful for me? What is what is not working for me about our relationship, or about the way you engage me sexually, or not, or even in the day to day? You know, because women again are high discriminators in terms of does this man really love me? Does this man really choose me? Mm -hmm. Does this man really desire me or does he just want to get off on my body? Okay. Mm -hmm. Because women are very attuned to that. And if this is just about being serviced, women don't want to. So they may have sex, but they aren't going to show up emotionally. And they may even have sex and know how to withhold from him at the same time to kind of torture him at the same time that they're doing something they don't, that they feel that they're being used around. So the, the basic idea is how do we both, how can this relationship be about both of us? Now, for many women, this is very challenging. When I recently taught um, women out in Utah, I did a live version of my courses, 
it was really striking to me how many women struggle with the idea of receiving, how uncomfortable it is to really receive sexually and otherwise. Hmm. And this is a big problem. This is a big problem. I think one of the reasons we don't like to receive is we like the control of being the giver. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to have a sense of self that actually feels like an equal, and many of us do not. Mm. And so if we're in control and we can think we are needed and necessary and we're kind of earning our legitimacy in the relationship through our serviceability, okay, that's completely antithetical to a relationship that's truly reciprocal and where the woman is really both giving and genuinely receiving, mm. genuinely acting like an equal that not that she has to earn her legitimacy, she is legitimate by nature of our divine reality, our divine existence. Our, our, it's a blasphemy that we as women are so attuned to this idea that we have to be serving and serviceable to kind of earn our rights on this planet or to have legitimate access to our sexuality. That's wrong. And we um, pay a price when we don't grow into the deeper truth around that, that we are inherently equal partners, that our sexuality is in, matters inherently because it belongs to us, because it's a part of being a woman. I'm really trying to help women grow into being whole women mm-hmm. in their own right, integrated with their sexuality. Not because they're trying to be less defective for their husband, but because they want to belong to themselves for once. Love it. And I can see it showing up in their sexuality, but in many areas of life. Absolutely, it does. It does. You, you feel, I, when I see women make this transformation, you just feel their strength just in their presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, not you know, just in the way they are in the marriage, the way they are in the conversation. So good. Yes. I love it all. I could keep you here all day, but um, why don't you just let people know if they want to work with you more, if they want to learn more from you, where can they go? And is there anything that you have coming up in the near future that might be of particular interest? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about female sexuality and desire and how to talk to your LDS kids about sex, visit Dr. Finlayson Fife's website today and look for the Art of Desire online course and the How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex course under the Online Courses tab. You can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website at www.finlayson-fife.com. We'll end today's episode by reading a short review of the How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex online course. Quote, What an amazing talent you have of framing sex, sexuality, and sexual relationships in a positive way that empowers me and gives me hope and courage to teach my children about sex in a way that will bless and enrich their lives. Based on the things that I have learned from this course, I have already changed the dynamics of my conversations with my children. End quote. Thanks for being here and thank you for listening. And in honor of the Christmas season, Dr. Finlayson Fife is having a holiday sale where you can take 20% off all of her online courses and get additional discounts if you buy more than one course. Act now before the sale ends.